Ready? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. Do you know about Thyatira? No. You're in good company. Nobody else does either. <laughs> Very good. Um, so the first commentator that I opened up to for, for, for Thyatira um, opens it up like this. He says, this is the longest letter and in his opinion, the most difficult of the seven letters written to the least important, least known church. So I said, okay, this is going to be fun. Let's dig into Thyatira. Revelation chapter two, the seven letters series. Our goal is to learn about who uh, God made us to be as his church, how he calls us to live as his church, and to, to press into that. In each letter of this series, uh, we see how Christ is spiritually present with his churches. He is, he is present, and he knows their works well. He knows everything about his churches. Uh, he, he is the shepherd who knows more than what their Facebook or their Instagram wall portrays. Um, in our time, when the world is becoming increasingly confused about the difference between the person we portray and the person we really are, Jesus' letters to his churches with their prophetic clarity stand out as a sobering and life-giving word to us today because we may have lost our identity in all of the different places that we portray. I'm this person. I'm that person. I want you to think that I'm like this. I want you to think that my life is great and it looks like this. And Jesus brings us back to, look, I know who you really are and this is who you are and this is what I commend and this is what you need to be repent of. We all, everyone in Jesus' church, there's nobody here today who can say this letter doesn't apply to me. We all have things that we're tempted to compromise on. We may have compromised on things that we need to repent of. And the good news is that Jesus welcomes us with open arms and he's, he's there to say, uh, I, I accept you. You're my child. I have conquered. You're not alone. You're not doing this on your own. Come and overcome with me. So this morning we'll be in Revelation 2, verses 18 through 29. It covers the whole letter to the church in Thyatira. Of the seven letters, two of them received all positive statements from Jesus, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Two of them received all negative statements from Jesus, Sardis and Laodicea. Thyatira is one of the churches, one of the three that got mixed reviews from Jesus. So we're going to read the text, uh, but first we're going to pray. So please join, join with me. Thank you, Father God, um, for your word. Thank you that whenever we open it, it is not a, uh, uh, an empty text. It is, it is full and to the brim, vibrant with your life. And as we open it up, Jesus, we pray that you would preach to us, that you would preach to our hearts and by your spirit, apply it to us, uh, that we would 
receive the gospel truths that are contained in this letter, that, um, that we would see what you're calling us to today. Uh, as this letter was written uh, many, many years ago, the truths that you included in this are for us today, and we pray that, uh, that you, would, you would help us to discern um, the application and, and uh, that we would receive your life-giving words from it. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to read the text, uh, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations." And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, before we begin in verse 18, uh, it's important I set the scene for you real quick. What, What kind of Circumstances. What kind of situation is Jesus's letter entering? At the time of the writing of the book of Revelation, Thyatira had been under Roman rule for uh, almost 300 years. Uh, Roman rule bought, uh, brought stability to a city that for the first century of its existence basically was just experiencing the ravages of war, being continually conquered as a a town on the outskirts, uh, on the frontier. Uh, so when the Romans came and they conquered it, uh, they brought stability and the city flourished with a large variety of trades. There were, among others, wool workers, linen workers, makers of outer garments, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths. Lydia, you might recall from Acts 16, verse 14, the businesswoman whom Paul met and evangelized in Philippi, the scriptures say she was from Thyatira. And they, the scriptures also tell us that she was a seller of purple goods, a, uh, one of the trades there in Thyatira. Why am I telling you about the craftsmen? Well, each of these craftsmen were part of a guild. Guilds were organized groups of workers in the same industry that had a common purpose, a little bit like a union They may have had significant political power. And here's where I'm really telling you this. The the guilds were not all business. 
They were the heart of the civic and social life of the city. They, they gathered together workers to frequent feasts uh, that they would have together. Um, and these feasts, and this is the central tension of, for the believers in Thyatira, the feasts were religious in character. Each guild had a patron god or goddess. And at these feasts, they would sacrifice the meat to the god first, and then they would eat it. And in doing so, it was a ritual uh, as if they were eating with the god and they were having this meal with the god and they were uh, interacting with it. Um, So refusal to participate in these guilds on uh, on account of these feasts uh, posed a special problem for the economic well-being of Christians because it meant the loss of goodwill Uh, being ostracized, um, and it could mean losing business. Uh, But being inseparably intertwined with the local religious rituals as they were, participation did involve direct compromise with one's faith. So there is this tension and this hardship that believers were experiencing in Thyatira. And where there is tension and where there is hardship, especially economic hardship, there is a desire for a leader to rise up and to bring relief. Uh, The situation is ripe for that. In the church of Thyatira, that would need to come in the form of someone providing justification for participation in the guilds and their feasts. And that's just what happened Someone who is referred to here as Jezebel began teaching a false gospel that led to compromise and idolatry. And the church in Thyatira did not actively stand against this false gospel. They tolerated it. And the church members started to be drawn in and influenced by it. So that's the situation. That right there, that mess, that happening in the church, the the devastation that is starting to happen, enter Jesus's letter. So he introduces himself, and he introduces himself like a different way in each letter. And it's important the way that he introduces himself. Here to Thyatira, he emphasizes by saying the words of the Son of God, he emphasizes the majestic, the divine aspect of his identity. These are the words of the Son of God to you. As John talked about last week, This is a shot at the Romans. The Roman leadership had the expectation that people would refer to them as God. Whenever they wrote letters and decrees, they introduced it with the Son of God, the sons of God. When Jesus opens up his letter, it's like a judge who walks into the courtroom and shoes away the little kid who's been playing judge out of his seat, and he takes his rightful seat right there. These, these Roman rulers, they were playing judge. They were playing God. And the real judge has just spoken up. He's just opened his mouth. And so they have to go take their place over there among the defendants, among the judged. This is Jesus. This is the true judge. And the judge has eyes like flames of fire. He has penetrating insight and judgment that nothing escapes. The Thyatirans, Their lives are laid bare. He's seen every feast and every act of idolatry and adultery. He has seen it. Nothing is hidden from his sight and his understanding. And his feet are like burnished bronze. He's ready to bring judgment and to crush his enemies. Before that happens, though, he has commendations for his family and their works. He says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service 
and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. Jesus, in the midst of the mess in Thyatira and what's happening, Jesus doesn't forget and doesn't, doesn't uh, it is not impossible for him to discern that there are good works happening in his family. This is a church that is not only in name a church, but in deed. There were genuine reflections of a real work of God uh, and God's spirit in their hearts. Furthermore, contrary to the Ephesians, as you'll recall, the Ephesians, which John uh, preached about in the, the first letter, contrary to them, the life of this church, the quality of life in this church was not diminishing. It was rather increasing. There were more good deeds and they had more impact than when Thyatira was a young church plant. Now, Pillar, Pillar Okinawa, our church here is a young church plant of almost four years. There are good works happening here. And from my observations, those works seem to be increasing. Imagine 20, 30 years from now, Jesus saying, he wrote, writes a letter to us and he says, your works now in 2040 are greater than when you were a young church plant back in 2020. That sounds really healthy, doesn't it? That sounds like a, a really good statement. It is. And it could mean that Pillar at that time is a healthy church. But one of the prophetic truths of this letter is that you can have genuine Christian works, genuine Christian works, not hollow, not fake, genuine Christian works that Jesus commends happening in a church at the same time things are happening that are fatal mistakes that threaten the very existence of a church. You can have both. We can't look at a church and say, well, this is good, this is good, this is good, must be a good church. You can have true Christian works happening in a church and at the same time something so fatal, so wrong that Jesus denounces and says, I'm coming to judge this now. You can have it happening at the same time. So we turn to the, from the, the commendation to the denunciation. Jesus says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. One important distinction is that the act of that somebody was prophesying was not what Jesus was denouncing, it was that what they were prophesying was Satan-inspired and was leading people away from true worship of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, do not despise prophecy. And in the early church here, the church actually relied on prophecy in a different way than we do today because they didn't have one of these. They didn't, this was not, the, the, the people in, in the church of Ephesus, uh, at least they didn't have the New Testament part. Uh, they didn't have um, this in Thyatira. They, they, they had maybe the decree that happened in, in AD 50, uh, where there was a council in Jerusalem. Peter and Paul were there. This is very significant. It was very important. Um, in AD 50, 40 years before this letter, there was a Jerusalem council, and they were, they were gathering together. Hey, Gentiles are starting to enter God's family. What do we tell them? Should they get circumcised? Should they do this? Should they do what? What should we, what requirements do we lay on them? And out of that council came this. We lay on you no other burden 
then to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, blood and things strangled, and from sexual immorality. We lay on you no other burden, just those things. So the church in Thyatira would have known about that. That was an important release of information, an important decree that had been released 40 years before that. They could have also been exposed to the writings of Paul to other churches, um, but they didn't have exactly what we have. And they didn't have study Bibles. They're just, it was different. And in their context, they relied on prophecy in it with, a, with a different role. And so it was that much more important that whoever claims to be prophesying must be prophesying the truth. Now, let me say this. Before we go into the works of Jezebel, I want to say this. The church in Ephesus, you might have noticed by this point, the church of Ephesus and the church in Thyatira, their commendations and their denunciations complement each other. They're like the reverse. Ephesus, they, they were losing their first love, but Thyatira, it, they were increasing in love and service and, and in faith. Uh, and Ephesus was, as you might recall, the more theologically vigilant church, whereas Thyatira was being denounced for, for becoming lax on their theological vigilance and allowing someone to be preaching a false gospel. In Revelation 2.2, Jesus commends the Ephesians. He says, you tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be false. In Thyatira, someone has anointed themselves as a prophetess and is teaching something that also the Ephesians would be familiar with, and that is the teachings of the Nicolaitans. You might remember how John talked about that, how Jesus in Revelation 2.6 says that the church in Ephesus hated the work of the Nicolaitans, and so did Jesus so he commended them for it. Not that they hated the Nicolaitans. They didn't hate people. They hated the works and the false teachings. But here in Thyatira, Jezebel is teaching what the Nicolaitans taught, and they are not taking an active stance against it. I would suggest that the church in Ephesus and the church in Thyatira could have helped each other. I think that the church in Ephesus could have benefited from the work of the spirit that had helped the Thyatirans not only keep their first love, but increase in it. And maybe, maybe the, the church in Ephesus could have helped the church in Thyatira sit down with, the, with, with this, this so-called prophetess and say, let's hammer this out. Let's look at the decree that we received from Paul and Peter. Let's, let's look at the, the scriptures. God tells us throughout the Old Testament not to be involved in pagan rituals like this is compromise is dangerous. A healthy church, what we can take from this, a healthy church doesn't isolate itself or become so independent that it develops fatal blind spots. And so I've always thought it was just, it was so, I was so impressed and it was refreshing when I saw John, uh, John Ransom invite other pastors to preach here and we would hear different voices to, to hear uh, other parts of, of, of the spectrum and emphasis uh, because no church is perfectly full spectrum gospel church. Like you, 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 are, you are a 10 on every single emphasis. Uh, we, we, have, we have things that we need to work on. Uh, but the Thyatiran church had, had become so 
deficient in their theological vigilance that it had become dangerous and devastating them. In Ephesus, they were being threatened that I will take away your lampstand if you don't repent and return to your first love. Those, those are emphases that have become blind spots to the point of almost devastating the church. Now, I'm sorry if you had hopes that I would be able to somehow reveal the identity of, of Jezebel, but uh, it's not revealed in the passage and commentators and scholars have never made a definitive identification. I could tell you the various theories, but I feel like it's just actually a distraction and maybe that's why Jezebel is used as a code word in here because the emphasis is not on who this is and 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 everything, but what are they doing and what are the works that the Thyatiran church are supposed to be repenting of? Jezebel is clearly a symbolic name, which recalls the Old Testament queen, the wife of King Ahab. And what did she do? She introduced idolatry in Israel, which threatened the continued existence of the true worship of God. Here at Thyatira, this Jezebel is doing the same thing, promoting aggressively the same idolatry. And what, this, this feeds into what I was talking about at the beginning with the guilds. It was most likely by justifying participation in the guilds and the guild feasts where meat was sacrificed to idols. And it's possible that sec, sexual immorality was being practiced as, as those feasts devolved into debauchery. It is also possible that that is being used symbolically as throughout the scriptures we see sexual immorality, as John, John talked about a, a week or two ago about uh, how is the word whoring being used? Well, it's, it's talking about spiritual idolatry and going after other gods. Looking at verse 24, I'm just going to jump to verse 24 and we're going to snap back uh, here pretty soon, but this feeds into where this is flowing into. Verse 24, you see the... You see the the phrase, the so-called, uh, what some call the deep things of Satan. It is possible that the Nicolaitans were involved in a kind of Satanism. There were such cults during that time. However, uh, I think it's more probable that, um, that this was, that they actually popularized a phrase more along the lines of the deep things of God and that the writer is sarcastically substituting Satan for God. Like he did in verse nine, he said synagogue of Satan rather than synagogue of God, like they were claiming. He's doing the same thing here. I don't think that, because these people have infiltrated the church and they've been allowed a place to teach. I don't think that you can come up to a church and say, we're here with a message of the deep things of Satan and get a platform. Um, I think that, uh, and, and many commentators say that uh, this is something that they had, had posed as we're teaching the deep truths of God and that it was thought that Jezebel was prophetically uttering these supposed profound truths that no one had, had heard about before. Um, and, and these were deep truths that, uh, that you guys don't know about. They're not in the scriptures. These are, these are other deep truths and no, they're hidden secrets um, and, and, and using that to deceive people. Uh, but when the writer substitutes Satan for God, he's exposing the real focus of their theology. 
Jezebel's teaching was probably not systematic or formal, but in the form of popular persuasion. The believers in Thyatira were enduring economic hardship by standing firm against participation in the guilds and the pagan practices. So it would have been so tempting to, you know, to bring home bread for your family, to not lose your business, to believe a prophecy that was declaring it's okay to go ahead and take part in the feast. It's okay. You can do it. I'll just relieve your tension right now. You no longer have to endure this. You can take part. And she may have even twisted what they, what they heard from Paul because Paul wrote, he said, an idol is nothing. He did say that. And, and false teachers will take a line from scripture and they'll twist it to teach something false. And she could have taken, see, Paul said an idol's not nothing. So you can go to the feast and just, I don't know, they're just, it's weird. It's a local practice that, you know, they just, you know, they do it. I, I don't, you know, you just have to sit there and then when the meat comes to you, you can eat it, you know? So, uh, and you don't, you don't have to stay for, for the rest of the stuff, you know, you can, you can leave. So she could have been posing it like that. But I think what is clear here is also that prophecy was involved. She claimed to be a prophet, not that she was just a, a teacher, but she's revealing supposed new things that they had never heard about before. It's a, it's, it's a new prophecy. So that's the Thyatira church, and that's what they're up against. So let's just take a moment to step back and ask ourselves a question, and this is what we can ponder this week. What are we feeling pressure and temptation to compromise on in order to not lose social standing, in order not to lose friends, in order to not lose a promotion, in order to not lose financial gain? The list goes on and on. And in order to not lose... Uh, potential romantic partners? What are we pressured and tempted to compromise on in order to not lose that? That's what we should ask ourselves. And this, is a, this can be a very exposing question because if you're following Jesus, you should experience, this is normal, healthy Christian experience, to experience pressure and temptation to compromise your life and theology. It's an indication that you're holding fast. When you're feeling pressure to compromise, temptation to compromise, it's an indication you're still holding fast because when you let go, the relief comes, but you've entered into compromise. When we don't feel that kind of tension, it may indicate that our life and theology are not aligned with God's truth, but with the world. It can happen very subtly. Maybe we soften our stance on a topic that scripture is very clear on. Maybe we cleverly craft our opinion and our wording not to be winsome or gentle and loving because we should be careful with our words. We, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't seek to offend unnecessarily. We shouldn't seek to make people mad or, or, or be Become identified with all the things that we're just against. That's not what this is about. But if we're using cleverness to craft our opinion so as to put a foot in both camps, so to be able to try to, try to follow Jesus and compromise on this thing, then we have subtly entered into that. Maybe we remain silent, 
But compromise is unavoidable. It's not something that you can stand. There is no neutrality. There is no neutrality on this. You take part in the feast or you don't. You take part in whatever it is you're pressured or tempted to take part in. You either do or you don't. There's no neutrality here. So you remain silent. You are choosing to take, you're choosing to not take an active stand against false teaching if it costs us dearly. Be loving, be gentle, be wise, but you can't rely on your own cleverness to get out of an active stance against false teaching. Now, the Thyatiran church seems to have remained silent. They, they tolerated that which Jesus denounced. And some did not hold to her teachings, but, and we see that in verse 24, but the whole Christian community there bears a collective responsibility for tolerating Jezebel and allowing these heretical opinions to be taught. One thing that, that really stuck with me from John's message, I think it was last week, was that holding fast and standing firm is a family effort. We do it together. We don't just reject false teaching ourselves, but we, in a, in a healthy church, Jesus' family members actively shepherd each other so that no one is deceived or caught up in something that brings them under Christ's judgment. We do that lovingly. We do that gently. We do that humbly, knowing that we aren't perfect, but hey, brother or hey, sister, can you tell me a little bit about that? I, got, I, need, I have some questions. I want to talk to you because I, I have some concerns. Or however you need to have that conversation so you're showing them that you love them and you also care about their eternity and something that they may be involved in or becoming involved in that Jesus denounces and could bring judgment upon them. And that's what happened with Jezebel and her committed followers. We see um, in the seven letters, all but two have some call of repentance. But only Thyatira includes a section that implies that the time given for repentance has actually passed for a group of people. Jesus has already denounced Jezebel's behavior in the past, either through the prophetic ministry of the apostle John or one of his prophetic associates, but she evidently chose not to respond. So warning has turned into judgment for Jezebel and her followers. There's a, there seems to be a couple of groups of people here. Her children, it says, I will strike them dead, but... Those who commit adultery with her, I'll throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. That's the only group that seems to still have some time left for repentance. Jezebel, he says, I'm throwing her on a sickbed. And her children, I'm going to strike them dead. Judgment has come. It's pronounced. It's final. The time has passed. This is a sobering moment. Judgment is intended to be a sobering event. When a church or a ministry that has been peddling false teaching experiences judgment, our temptation might be, yes, man, they've had this coming for a long time. They've been, they've been preaching a false gospel. Jesus got them. That's not the response that Jesus wants for us. 
The temptation might be to haughtily laugh and fist pump because we're better, right? Because we're wiser, because no, we're not. We're not. Our sin deserves judgment as well. And it's the mercy of God that he has not visited us in judgment. And so the takeaway that Jesus wants for his churches is that for one, He's the one who searches minds and hearts. He's not fooled by the persona we portray online, by our clever answers, by our masks that we may wear. He's not fooled by it. Jezebel may have claimed to have prophetic insight, but Jesus is the true and better prophet who searches mind and heart. And in a healthy church, Jesus's family members look on judgment. They look on it with humility and they look on it with healthy fear because we are no better in ourselves than those who come under judgment. We regularly examine ourselves with the help of God's word and his spirit. Because our own sin deserves judgment, we regularly confess to one another and we run to Jesus for mercy. We run to him. And that leads into our transition from judgment to the promise to those who conquer in Christ. In verse 24, Jesus speaks to those who have not succumbed to the false teaching and he lays on them no other burden. Does that language sound a little familiar? It's the same language that was found in that apostolic degree, uh, decree. We lay on you no other burden. Abstain from sexual immorality, blood, uh, things that were strangled, and meat sacrificed to idols. And those were the things that the Thyatirans were compromising on. And Jesus says, I lay on you no other burden. He could have listed off all the other things that were incomplete in this church, but he's he's highlighting the fatal things here, the things that really were taking them downhill, the things that could bring them into serious judgment. Although Jesus judges all sin, these were the things that really threatened the existence of this church and and its health. So he highlights this and he says, I lay on you no other burden, Maintain a firm grip on the truths of the faith against this false teaching. So then there's the promises that he gives to to reward his family members who will conquer. I'm going to discuss the rewards. We're hitting the the home stretch here. I'm going to discuss the rewards, and then we'll end by talking about what is meant by conquering. Each of the seven letters describes various rewards for conquering. And in the letter to Thyatira here, the promise is authority over the nations and the morning star. Authority over the nations can cast this rather startling image of participation of the saints in the final judgment. The reference to pots and broken in pieces is probably related to an ancient practice where they took an a earthen pot uh, and they would inscribe on it the names of the nation's enemies and then they would ritually smash it on the ground uh, to symbolize the future victory of the king. And it, that, along with the other statements, depicts how believers will share in Jesus's triumph over the rebellious people's and to receive a delegation of his authority over the nations. The giving of the morning star, there's a couple of references to the morning star. There's a couple of uh, uh, theories. The one where 
we say that this is reference to Jesus doesn't make really a whole lot of sense. It's really probably a reference to Venus, which is um, at certain times of the year visible in the morning sky. Um, and so it, it has the name the morning star. Uh, the Roman legions carried a symbol of the planet Venus on their banners to depict Roman invincibility. So Jesus is taking another shot at the Romans and he's promising that, that morning star to his people. And he's saying to the church in Thyatira, you're getting crushed, you're getting, you're getting pressured, you're, you're getting your businesses taken away, your livelihoods are being threatened, you feel helpless because, because what are you gonna do? You're gonna compromise? You feel helpless. And the Romans... They, they are proclaiming that they're the invincible ones and they're the powerful ones. But you know what? I'm gonna give you the morning star. In the end, if you stay and hold fast and you stay firm, I will give you the morning star. The final sovereignty and power lays with me and with my victorious family. Jesus is saying that to them. If you will hold fast and you will not give in to the temptation, Jezebel is trying to give you a, a, a quick relief. She's tempting you to, to take the relief, relieve the tension. Don't take it. And I will give to you my authority over the nations. I will, I will delegate to you a part of that and you will rule with me and we'll be victorious together. It won't be the Romans who seem so invincible and they boast so much about their invincibility. They too someday will come crashing down, but I never will stay steadfast in me. And this feeds into what is, what is conquering? What is gospel conquest? To conquer sounds like we need to overpower something or take control of it by force. That is one meaning of the word. But here the meaning is less about overpowering and more about remaining faithful. And we take that from the model of Jesus. He modeled gospel conquest in his faithfulness unto death. Satan tempted him. Satan tempted him in a little bit the same way that Jezebel was tempting the church in Thyatira. If you'll bow down to me, you don't have to wait. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer these things. Everybody will like you. Nobody will say they hate you. Even the Pharisees will like you. I will, I will arrange that. If you just bow down to me, I'll give it to you right now. You can have relief, no tension. Jesus, if you'll turn these stones into bread and ignore what the Spirit has led you to do and fast, you turn these stones into bread, you can get rid of that hunger right now. Right now, we can deal with this right now. No more tension, no more hunger, no more suffering. You have it right now. But Jesus remained steadfast. He was threatened and mocked and ridiculed, and yet he didn't compromise. Jesus was abandoned by everyone. His closest friends even ran away. That was his, what he went through socially. And yet he didn't compromise. He went through the physical. He was tortured and executed and to the end remained faithful. You see a pattern? Jesus was not relieving the tension that, he's ex that he was experiencing right then and there. But instead, his eyes were set on what he was called to do. And his eyes were set on what he was supposed to be remaining faithful to. 
and he remained faithful, and he calls us to hold fast no matter the social, financial, political, physical costs. Wow, that's heavy. That's a really heavy burden. I'm not gonna end the sermon there because that's not very hopeful. Jesus lays on you no matter what happens, you gotta remain faithful. That's not, that's not the full gospel right there. Like John Ransom said a few weeks ago, when he preached on the letter to, to the church in Ephesus, he says, the Bible never calls us to conquer something on our own. We can't. Jesus is the conqueror. Jesus not only is our model for gospel conquest, he is our sufficiency for it. When our hearts are tempted to compromise, we run to Christ. We know him as the one who searches hearts and minds And that can be a comforting thing because he knows our weaknesses and he has lived through them. He has experienced them. He knows us. He knows what we're going through. He has already gone through it. He is a priest who knows our experience. He's ready, he's waiting, and he's able to help all who repent of their compromise and come to him. Brothers and sisters, I give you this message today not to lay a heavy burden on you, not to, not to make you feel down, not to make you feel anything but the hope of the gospel because this is your reality. You're already in it. I'm not telling you or bringing on you anything new. Your reality is you, as a follower of Christ, will be tempted and pressured to compromise your life and your theology probably on a daily basis. So I'm giving you the hope of the gospel that if you are involved in compromise, Jesus is waiting and and you can repent and you can come to him. If you haven't compromised, you can hold fast and the hope is not in your own strength, but he, if you run to him daily, he will give you strength to hold fast. And the hope that goes into eternity is that he will reward that, that you will not suffer this forever, that this tension will not be there forever. It will be relieved one day. If you hold fast, Jesus is waiting. You can come to him. You can run to him. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you've given us this word. Jesus, thank you for speaking this to not only the church in Thyatira, but thank you for for speaking it to us. Thank you that you spoke things that are relevant to us today and Helpful is too little a word to say what this is. This is life-giving. This is what we need desperately more than anything else. We're comforted by your words. I pray that everyone in this room would be comforted by your words, that there is hope for those who have entered into compromise. And I think that uh, we probably all have to a certain extent. We pray that you would, you, the one who searches mind and heart, that you would reveal to us where we have compromised and we don't even realize it. We've been deceived. And Father God, that we would have the courage to come out of that, that we'd have the courage to repent. Help us by the Spirit to to help each other as well, not just rejecting false teaching ourselves, but helping one another and encouraging each other in the faith and holding each other accountable lovingly out of godly care for each other, that we would that we would be broken in our hearts when we see a brother or sister uh, who, is, who is in false teaching or has compromised in any way. I pray that uh, you, would, you would break our hearts over that and you would bring restoration uh, through the body, Lord, uh, and through your word. Thank you. Pray this in your name. Amen.